0: keep talking can you hear me now hey pop pop i don't hear it pop pop yeah i don't hear it either what (laughs) let me go get the duct tape hang on
1: and leah's recording no yeah okay welcome to audio dude okay
2: start from the beginning
1: Hey, Prog fans, welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Prog Podcast Project. My name is Tony, and as always, I am joined by...
0: I'm Craig. And I'm Lee.
1: We are three friends and prog aficionados here to talk about the history and the craft of progressive music while sprinkling in our always unvarnished opinions of the music and personalities that make this genre so great. As always, don't forget that you can find us on Twitter at UP3Show or contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com if you just can't get enough of us. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our homepage at up3show.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This makes sure that you never miss an episode and helps other prog fans find the show.
3: More subscribe.
1: <laughs> Click
3: subscribe. I
1: want and <laughs> so as we get into this month's episode, I'm looking at, as always usually at Craig first here. So Craig, what have you been up to since last month?
0: Uh, I'm in Brooklyn for Thanksgiving, visiting with the kids and uh, doing it during a pandemic, and uh, we drove out from Colorado to Brooklyn, and uh, maybe I'm rambling because I've been driving for the past three days, 10 hours straight. Ooh, where's the coffee, Nance? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nance, is there coffee? <laughs> nice. It's uh, Tuesday. It must be Missouri.
1: Have you gotten to spend any time with the kids?
0: No, uh, not yet we're going to have coffee with my daughter tomorrow out of doors because her roommates have been behaving irresponsibly. Oh, oh! so what she did is she's like, you know, I don't feel good about this because daddy, you're so old and sickly that I don't want to kill you. She's got an Airbnb for the next month and she's quarantining for, for a couple of weeks. Right. So we're, we're going to have a belated Thanksgiving. Nope. They're good kids. They're in their twenties. And it's in spite of literally everything I, I did to them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What have you been up to, Lee?
2: One of my favorite albums growing up as a kid was Something Anything by Todd Rundgren. It's early in his solo career after he left Naz. And for about 75% of that album, he plays every instrument. Drums, vocals, bass, guitar, keys, all of it. And I just really looked up to that album for that reason. There is a song on that album called Couldn't I Just Tell You that I liked immediately. But I've always in the back of my head thought that song would be great done in a heavier vein. I guess I wouldn't really call it a metal version, but a harder rock version of that song. And I thought in the back of my head, well, if I ever get back into a band, I will push to do the version of that song I hear in my head. And I'm kind of tired of waiting. So I just decided I'm going to go ahead and do it. So I've started laying out the tracks for a heavier version of Couldn't I Just Tell You. Nice. Yeah. Didn't Todd Rundgren have a lot to do with at least first album? Yes, that's true. I think it's bad out of hell, but he has huge producing chops. He's produced XTC, Patti Smith, um, Badfinger, some Grand Funk, uh, Cheap Trick. His name is all over some of the more popular albums of the 80s
1: and 90s. So are you going to publish that when you're done, like on YouTube or anything?
2: Yeah, possibly, if it comes out at least close to the way I hear it in my head. I'd need to get permission, of course, but maybe post it on Bandcamp
0: or Spotify.
1: Nice. That's really cool.
0: I wonder if we could uh, maybe get you to play it on the UP3 podcast in 30-second chunks.
1: Sure. That way we don't run afoul of fair use.
2: I might give you permission to play more of my song. We'll see. We'll reach out
0: to Rick Beato and say, hey, we got permission, pal. Yeah, that's right.
1: We have the, all, we have all yeah. the tracks. We have the multi. We
0: got permission. Oh, that would actually be really cool if you could uh, do like a what makes this song great.
1: So I guess that leaves me. Yeah, what are you up to? So in a similar vein, about a week or two ago, I got this idea, like I was really, really listening to a lot of Peter Gabriel, and I was listening to Family Snapshot, and I just had this sound, kind of similar to what you were talking about, Lee, where I was like, I really think this track could do with being heavier. Yep. I went and I was finding some heavier, almost metal covers of that song that are instrumental. Oh, wow. And started trying to lay down some vocals with it. It hasn't really panned out the way I wanted it to yet, but I really haven't put a whole lot of effort into it. And other than that, I have come back to my solid state Mellotron project. Oh, good. Nice. I'll get a little geeky and techie for the audience here, so pardon me for a moment. But I was doing it on an Arduino platform, which is like a little microcontroller platform. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't really able to get some of the frequency shifting and stuff the way I wanted it to do. I work in the FPGA industry, which is a very niche corner of the semiconductor industry. And some of the devices that my company makes has the ability to do some of that dynamic phase shifting and pitch shifting if you know how to control them properly. And so I'm working on migrating my design over to that. Cool. Still early nascent level of that project. But yeah, that's what I've been working on.
0: Now, are are you doing it in HDL or are you going to use like a high level language or?
1: I am HDLing this thing. No, no, I came, went through school learning VHDL and I'm more comfortable in VHDL. It's like my first language, mm-hmm. but I know where the industry's going and I need to learn Verilog more. And so I'm actually using this as an opportunity to learn Verilog.
0: That's what our company is all about. That's what I used to tell people is uh, we'll give you all the rope you need and you do whatever you want,
1: <laughs> whatever you want with all the rope we give you. <laughs> so I guess we'll kind of go around again. And what have you been listening to, Craig?
0: Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned Peter Gabriel because I uh, thought that my wife packed the CDs and she thought I packed the CDs for this three-day drive. (laughs) But all there really was was uh, a Henry Mancini album and a couple of Peter Gabriels.
1: Which Peter Gabriel albums?
0: uh, Security and So.
1: Good choices.
0: I saw the So concert, Mm -hmm. which I think we talked about this uh, maybe in this episode. The opening track of that, Please Talk to Me, was visually and theatrically really cool because it had a london telephone booth Mm -hmm. and a landline for you old people he would pick up the receiver and slowly in time with the music walk all the way across the stage and was it was in the round and uh like wrap himself in it and do kind of like this slow dance kind of thing it was really really cool and i was reminded of it uh on the 17th or 18th listen to the track
1: That was actually the visual that that got me into Secret World Live, Mm -hmm. where I was. The store had that playing on a constant loop, Uh so I saw that song, and that sucked me into watching that concert there and memorizing that, and that turned me into a Peter Gabriel fan.
0: That was just such a strong opening.
1: So how about you, Lee? What are you listening to?
2: I am listening to Airbag. It's a band out of Norway. Mm -hmm. About four years ago, I think, they had an album called Disconnected. And I listened to it quite a bit and then kind of put it away and sort of forgot about it. And then I was just on the Prague website. They're doing the Prague Awards and taking nominations. And Airbag's new album, A Day at the Beach, is right up there front and center. And so I thought I'd give it another shot. The band tends to be a little atmospheric, Mm -hmm. but every now and then they'll click into this Prague rock song that is really interesting now, so... Spending a little time and refamiliarizing myself with airbag. Nice. What about you?
1: The big thing I've been listening to, kind of on loop recently, has been some of my favorite classical pieces. So specifically, I have been listening to the Carmen Barina Suite and the Pierre Gynt Suite over and over and over. And it reminded me that years ago I was in a Toastmasters group, and I did this Toastmaster speech about how. If you trace back the roots of metal and like the movements of Prague and Prague metal, you find a lot of these classical structures in them. Right. And I was just sitting there listening to Carmen Aburina and Pjurget and just seeing it all over the place.
2: Carmen Burana, yeah, especially the
1: structures and. Yep. And then the only related Prague thing I've been listening to is not really Prague. It's more symphonic metal. Has been the new Leaves Eyes record. It's really good. Very cool. All right. And so let's also catch up on the prog news. Craig, what do you got? What, what kind of prog news or updates do you have?
0: A friend of mine uh, sent me something about prog stock and there's going to be a live show uh, with Tom Brislin coming up. I bought my ticket. Oh, you already got it. Yeah, awesome. I, I really want to hear Tom Brislin solo.
1: I saw the thing that you sent out, Craig, but I didn't get a chance to read it yet. So is this like a live Zoom thing or is this a live in-person thing?
0: I'm not exactly sure. Do you know, Lee?
2: Uh, it's fundraiser for uh, the Bob Moog Project. It's a charity that funds education for music. I believe it's live, but I think it's in a studio
0: setting.
1: That sounds similar to what Leprous did recently.
0: Yeah, if you do go up to the Prague Stock webpage, if you're not familiar with Tom Brislin's background, I had no idea he's played with everybody. Yeah, he has, including Kansas as is his current gig. Uh, what
1: do you got, Lee?
2: Jim Godfrey, the driving force behind the band Frost. Has started a new podcast called The Voltage Controllers. And he is interviewing keyboardists and they discuss things like gear and rigs and albums they played on and all kinds of stuff. So far, I've listened to the Richard Barbieri interview. He's the keyboard player from Porcupine Tree in Japan. And also the Mark Kelly interview, the keyboardist from Marillion. Oh, nice. Yeah, I found the Richard Barbieri interview to be really fascinating. Uh, new transatlantic coming out in February, the absolute universe. And they have started releasing little snippets here and there. They did an overture and a couple other ones. Sounds good. So yeah, it does. Um, I'm really looking forward to that.
1: Only thing that gives me trepidation is that there are three distinct versions of it.
2: I know. Yeah, that's weird.
1: And Portnoy has been interviewed about it and he said they are all different.
2: Yeah. Um, there have been people on Twitter and different social media forums complaining about they don't know what to buy and what's the difference and all that kind of stuff. And I got the same impression there. It's three different releases.
1: The album is called The Absolute Universe. There's a definitive edition, the standard edition, and the ultimate edition. Immediately, my brain was like, I'm going to buy the ultimate edition. Yeah. And then I saw in an interview, Portnoy says, yeah, well, the definitive edition has some of the same tracks, but they're a different arrangement. And then the standard edition has a completely different set of tracks and a completely different arrangement. Yeah. It feels a little transatlantic ink.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. I
2: totally understand where you're going with that. Yeah. Anything else, Lee? Vola, the band out of Sweden, has a new album coming out in 2021. They have a preview called The Head Mounted Sideways, and it's more metal than the last couple of albums have been. So I think that's interesting. Mystery has a new live album scheduled, and I Am The Morning is going to do a new EP called Counting Ghost, and that's next month. Uh, Gavin Harrison is doing a solo album called Chemical Reactions, and they're finally going to queue up to Steve Wilson the Future Bites album in January. That's been delayed, like, I don't know how long now. Yeah,
1: I've been seeing that art for, like, a year and a half.
2: (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yeah. And then finally, Mark Kelly of Marillion has his solo album coming out next week called Marathon.
1: The only one I want to add in there, I'm super excited. I just saw announced that there is a new Anik von Heersbergen solo record called The Darkest Skies Are the Brightest uh, coming out in February. So once I figure out which version of the Transatlantic album to buy, I will be pre-ordering both that and the Anik von Heersbergen album. Very cool. This time it is Craig's turn to lead us through a journey of one of his favorite bands, and he's going to walk us through the Craig version of the history of Genesis. And before we get into that, uh, we do want to disclose for the audience that we do have some audio technical issues on this episode. We've rectified those, and the people responsible have been executed, <laughs> and we'll no longer be able to participate.
0: We're down to UP2, is, is what we are now. Two and a half, we cut his knees out. We're going to talk about Genesis tonight, and I'm really excited to do it because Genesis wasn't the first prog band I loved, but uh, it's the first band that I just really, really uh, infatuated over. I bought the musical box from the bargain cutout bin back in the day. We've said so many times as we talk about music, you know, oh, this changed my life. Musical box changed my life, even though I don't listen to much of it anymore. What I hope to do in our chat tonight is not to rehash all the same stuff that everybody knows about Genesis, blah, 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 five guys from a school. Peter Gabriel used to be in the band, then he quit, and then Phil Collins became the front man, and then they started to suck. It's a well-worn tale. Hopefully, we'll, we'll uncover some new things and get maybe some new and different insights about Genesis. And so what I did is I went back to the very beginning of who these guys were and where they started. And they started young in boarding school. Mike Rutherford, Tony Banks, and Peter Gabriel, these guys were chums in a boarding school, kind of the upper class.
1: Yeah, I was researching about them and I found out that specifically that boarding school was for people whose parents wanted them to go into business.
0: Interesting. You know, in a couple of the interviews, they said, Oh, I just thought these guys uh, would have ended up as accountants and lawyers, but they wanted to be musicians. And music was not allowed in the boarding school, but at the same time, they wanted to be songwriters, so they would sneak off and write songs.
1: What do you mean music wasn't allowed in the boarding school? Like as a curriculum or like you couldn't have albums?
0: It sounded like as a, as a diversion, it was either frowned upon, maybe not forbidden, but there was like only one space where they could listen to music during the day and at night it sounds like there was restrictions and it just sounds like it was really oppressive
3: oh
1: wow
0: there's quite a few musicians born in the 50s english musicians where school comes up a lot in their songs like super in crime of the century there's a couple of mentions of schools they had similarly difficult experiences yeah of course pink floyd right? the wall You know, they talk about, you know, hey, teacher, need those kids. Yeah, Yeah,
1: I even I recently read Rob Halford's uh, autobiography, and he talked about the same thing in there.
2: I have a lot of the Monty Python original stuff, and they talk about
1: how oppressive a lot of those
0: schools were as well. And so you wonder if that was like a post-war thing or where that came from. And Yeah, that's interesting. So I was listening
2: to the interview where Steve Hackett went to public school.
0: It's really interesting. I think a lot of the dynamic that came out of Genesis had to do a lot with the whole class structure. Steve would bring ideas into the band. He wasn't treated like an equal partner. So anyway, when they were just uh, getting out of school, they recorded their first album. They really just wanted to be songwriters. They didn't really want to be performers. They didn't want to be a famous band. They just wanted to be like Lennon and McCartney.
2: That's the Beatles, Tony, just in case you didn't
0: know. <laughs> The Beatles, that's that band that Paul McCartney used to play with.
1: <laughs> I, I'm stuck on the idea of just being songwriters, uh-huh. because the Beatles were obviously a very big thing. They were much more than just songwriters.
2: Yeah, I also listened to the Trick of the Tale re-release interviews, and Mike Rutherford said
0: all we really ever wanted to be was just songwriters. Yeah. So their first album, From Genesis to Revelations, was really just demos Of the songs they were writing at the time, and this is like 69, and they were 19. Holy cow. Wait a minute.
2: Say that again. They were 19?
0: They were 19 when they had more than an album's worth of songs that they never, ever intended to play live. They were just demo tracks they tried to sell. That's just fucking insane.
1: I know. There's so much talent.
2: Dude,
0: what did you do when you were 19, and are you proud of it?
1: Yeah, 19. I don't even
2: want
0: to talk about it. Well, you know, this gets into the whole, well, first, let me just play this clip. I hear that and I just it reeks of sixties, sensibilities. Hermans, hermits,
2: that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah.
0: And you know, a lot of a lot of reverb and, you know, tambourine and right. you'd never guess it was it was Genesis. There's a few other tracks on the album that are a little more identifiable as Genesis. I like that one because it's just so bad.
1: <laughs> when I listen to a lot of the bands, whether they're prog or not, from that probably Mid 60s to very early 70s, a lot of these bands that are even like on their very first recording or what have you, they've got a very complicated sound. Like there's already a lot going on. Was that just part of the zeitgeist in that period of time? Can you give an example
2: of what you're talking about?
1: Well, like right there, like that was pretty complex. For me, structurally, and that's like, they're 19 and that's their first record. And the first King Crimson record is a good example of that for me. There's so much going on. Like, a lot of the other bands that I listen to, especially as I was coming up as a teenager, like Nirvana, if you go listen to Nirvana's first album, there's not as much going on musically. Now, eventually they do get there, but not on their first recording. And I'm just wondering why that phenomena happened, or if it's even not related to prog at all, maybe.
0: I think it might sound complex because there's a lot of reverb going on
1: Fair, Okay.
0: And in fact, they, it was acoustic guitar and maybe some piano and maybe some strings, obviously bass. You know, if we were to look at it on a spectrum analyzer, I think there's like a whole lot of noise in a narrow band of frequencies. Um, and that might be coming across as complex, but it's pre chords, you know, verse chorus, uh, not to poo poo your observations because all observations are valid. And they had a guy who was kind of managing them back then, who was just a couple of years older than them from the school, a dude named Jonathan King. He was trying to kind of be their producer. He was specifically trying to make them not be too complex because, you know, at that time, 19 year old Tony Banks really was wanting to push the envelope and play the organ and do crazy shit. Um, and he's like, no, we're doing pop songs.
3: Mm.
0: every interview that you hear with Mike Rutherford and Tony, they're like, uh, yeah, we don't really like to talk about Genesis to Revelations. But you know, here's the funny thing. They actually sold one of the songs and they got Airplay and it was panned mostly. But again, a bunch of 19 year olds just pretended to be songwriters, wrote songs and and sold one of them. So what they started to do since nobody really wanted to buy their songs is they started to play them themselves, and started to perform live and told that Jonathan King guy to take a hike because he was apparently a sex offender or something. This is a very interesting band already. Uh, Yeah, I know. And again, 20. How many sex offenders were you interacting with on a professional level when you were in your 20s? Well, I I don't like to talk about that time in my life. but
1: He doesn't like to brag.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you start to see the real genesis come out really in their next album, which is one that they're at least a little bit proud of. They uh, started to perform a lot, told uh, Jonathan King to take a hike, and Tony whipped out his organ. Maybe that's why Jonathan was attracted to (laughs) them. See, it's already like sex offender. He's whipping out his organ. I'm sorry. We're losing our E rating.
1: No, we're gaining our E rating.
0: Here is a song that they close their shows with it frequently.
3: us Stand up and fight or you know we are right. We strike-
0: That's a lot of good Prague starting in there. Yeah. It's starting to sound like Prague. It's really starting to sound like Genesis. You can hear Peter Gabriel's voice and it's kind of a protest song. What's interesting is, you know, they start out, they just want to be songwriters. Uh, they start doing like pop songs that didn't really pan out very much. So they start turning into Genesis and Tony's really trying to drive them to push the limits and, you know, really be prog But when you listen to all the interviews, Mike Rutherford actually was probably the one, but Tony as well. They look at their collection in this classic Genesis period and they say, yeah, but it's really busy and, you know, where does it go? And they're not really tight songs. And to me, I interpret that as they're trying to figure out how to write pop songs and they take this journey through Prague to get there. Oh, wow. That's weird. It really is weird. But, you know, Steve Hackett leaves and Peter Gabriel leaves and they're free to do that. So they've taken this Prague journey and pushed it as far as they want. And now they just wanted to tighten it up. And they did. And that's what latter day Genesis is. It's a bunch of pop songs. And it took them to be prog heroes to figure out how to not be prog heroes. Oh my God. They look back on that period and they're they're not proud of their work in a lot of regards. And it just blows my mind. Wow, that's amazing.
1: We had this conversation one time where I think Craig, it was you describing it as like these balloons that were pulling it against each other. Mm-hmm. I think you have like a Steve Hackett balloon that was pulling in one direction and a Peter Gabriel balloon that was pulling in another, and then Tony Banks pulling in another. And in the center of that Venn diagram, we got like 70s Prague era Genesis, which all of us really care about. And then as soon as those other two balloons, like it goes shooting in a different direction.
2: That's a really interesting observation. I've never really thought of their career like that. It's kind of bookended.
1: Like the shit that we ended up with is where they were trying to get to all along. <laughs>
2: and they were very happy with that direction.
0: And part of that is I mentioned earlier that they didn't come up with a lot of music because of the school that they were at. Right. It's kind of like the monkeys in a typewriter thing. Eventually you get Shakespeare. There are three monkeys that were just like trying to be songwriters and supper is ready came out and watch Are the skies came out and selling England by the pound came out and they learn from those mistakes <laughs> how to write pop songs
1: that's the thing is like these master strokes they consider mistakes
0: so after the second album trespasses where the knife came from they lost their guitar player and they lost their drummer and that's when Phil Collins and Steve Hackett joined the band their songwriting took a big change because one of the things that Phil Collins really wanted to bring in you know he is just an ace drummer and unlike Steve Hackett, who, you know, was never quite an equal, he was just sort of like the lowercase G guitar player. Phil Collins, he was a child actor, and even though he didn't go to the boarding school, he was a little bit more kind of upper class and was able to kind of hold his own. So he brought like a lot of musicianship. I want to play two clips for you and compare what Phil Collins was listening to, because he goes, you know, every week I'd go out and see yes, and then we'd go and try and write songs. So here's what was going on at the time when Phil Collins joined Genesis. And then here's what Genesis was doing at the same time. Comparing super intense, high musicianship, Prague with a capital P, yes, to Genesis that was three of the five of them would be playing 12-string guitars on stage, just that kind of stuff. And, you know, Phil wanted a little bit more uh, musicianship. You know, when Phil joined the band, it was still the Nursery Crime album had already been kind of written and Foxtrot, which was really a big change for them. That's when, you know, he could really have an impact on the songwriting in the band. When you look at some of the songs that came out of Foxtrot, there is a huge amount of musicianship in there. And I just want to play an example of that. That's just awesome. I love that.
1: It is. And I love Supper's Ready, but are you making a comparison to the Yes clip that we had versus where like saying the Supper's Ready is getting closer to what, what they were listening to with Yes? Because it still feels a bit more mellow to me.
0: I agree. But that is kind of the comparison I'm making where they're starting to introduce weird time signatures. Mm. You know, if you listen to more of that track, I mean, it's a 20 minute song, so we can't play the whole thing. But there's, you know, screaming guitar solos in it. There's a, it goes up and down. There's a lot of changes in dynamics, tons of drums. You know, Phil Collins is really strutting his stuff. Uh, Steve Hackett gets to do some screamy guitar solos, really just is a gorgeous song that they all still like. Um, and yeah, I think what I'm getting at is, is yes, and King Crimson really did push them to stretch their writing. And, and they acknowledge that. And I never really thought about it at the time. You know, I always did think, you know, oh, yes, Kansas, King, Crimson, Genesis. But I never thought of them as being in competition with each other. Uh, But they absolutely did.
1: You know, that's interesting that you say that because we even talked about this in the What is Prague episode of like having this intellectual brain trust that's going on in the community and it's pushing them to extend their boundaries.
0: One of the things that happens that makes Genesis very unique and it saddens me that I never got to see them do this. Right around the time when Phil and Steve joined the band, Peter Gabriel started wearing costumes and specifically very elaborate masks on stage. The question I wanted to pose to you, Tony, is if you have a band that is doing prog music, but you also have a member of the band who writes a lot of the lyrics, and he's accentuating the live performance piece, with costumes and acting things out, does that make them an art rock band or is it just the thing that they do?
1: That's an amazing question. I don't know if I have a good answer for it. Um, I don't know. I, I, I still have, don't think I've landed on a complete answer here because
3: mm-hmm.
1: who, who was it? The phrase like art rock is like halfway between like more mainstream and then the more progressive boundary pushing part of it. Um,
2: well, what I said in the last episode is, I used to see art rock as sort of a sappy tag that people would put on bands that they didn't think quite hit prog.
1: Yeah, and I go back to like even the definition that we used a little bit where there's like the concept of an auteur who has a vision for a whole concept. Mm -hmm. I think Peter might have been trying to push that on Genesis a little bit, and maybe some of the other members of the band didn't necessarily want that. An interesting angle on that that came up today, I was doing some research and I watched a video about it was actually about Peter Gabriel, but obviously they covered his time in Genesis. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how true this anecdote is, but they were talking about where they were playing live in their local area a lot. A lot of the auditoriums had PA systems that sucked, so the audience often couldn't hear the band. And so Peter took to the costumes as a way of like increasing the multimedia aspect so he could like engage the audience if they couldn't hear them very well. And the reason I bring that up is like, If that was the intent was like to keep the audience engaged, that's a little bit different than like I have an artistic vision. Now, maybe it started as I need to entertain the audience and turned into an artistic vision over time. I don't know.
0: I've heard Peter give a variety of answers as to what spurred him to wear costumes. And that was absolutely one of them. Mm -hmm. Just to add a visual element to the audio portion, like you might do a light show. Oh, I'll wear costumes. I think the other one of the other things he says is there's a lot of long musical interludes where he's not doing shit and you can only play tambourine so much. Mm. And I think the first time he did it, he uh, wore one of his wife's dresses and a fox hat to match what was on the cover of uh, the Foxtrot album, even though it has nothing to do with any of the songs on the album. You know, one of the interesting things about that anecdote is, at the time, the band was uh, described as a democracy. All band decisions were done by vote, and, you know, there was no one dictator. Peter had this idea to start wearing costumes, and his thought was, well, shit, if I put it to a vote, um, I'll lose, you know, because Tony won't want to do it. So Peter didn't tell him that he was going to wear a dress and a fox hat. On that first gig. Uh-huh. And the rest of the band was like, what the fuck? But what happened was, Melody Maker took a picture of it and it was on the cover and they started getting noticed. It was just like the right thing at the right time. And it really kind of pushed them over the top and it really uh, got people interested in them.
3: Hmm.
0: Now, the downside of that, the perception in the world was it was Peter's band because he was wearing costumes and he was the singer and he was the front man but really Tony was kind of the chief songwriter and there was some friction there and that's, you know, well-documented apparently. Right, yeah. That element of conflict just continued, so that kind of exacerbated a little bit. Peter went from just being the uh, singer-lyric writer to singer-lyric writer front man. got them on the cover of Melody Maker.
2: Yeah, the interview I read with Steve Hackett in Ultimate Guitar reiterated what you just said, that at times they just felt like Peter's backing orchestra, to use his words, but that Peter was the one that got him noticed by his stage presence. Mm -hmm. It didn't seem like it was band decisions for him to be kind of doing costumes.
0: Well, before Peter left, song credits were always written by Genesis. Right. There was never one writer. After Peter left, that's when they started saying, oh, yeah, robbery, assault, and battery. That's Tony Banks and Phil Collins. They were forced almost to be more musical, I think, because Peter wrote most of the lyrics and they were, you know, compelling to some degree. I
2: believe Trigger of the Tail" is the first album without Peter Gabriel. It is. And that happens to be one of my favorite Genesis albums because it's got Dance on a Volcano. Which is an awesome song. It is. Another comment you made in that same article is that even though they lost Peter Gabriel in the showiness, Mm -hmm. that the band as a whole got more musical after that.
1: Do we know about the songwriting process with Peter around? Like, was it songs, music first, then lyrics, or lyrics first, and then music? I imagine with Tony Banks in the band, it's going to be music first.
0: I think it was usually music first. One of the comments that um, Mike Rutherford had about Peter's lyric writing was that it was really wordy and didn't necessarily fit the music Again, an example of them trying to figure out how to write tight songs. So I have a clip of an example that he gave of too many words for a given bit of music. Now, I actually think that's a great song. I do, too. If you listen to the whole thing, it's like a little novella. It's got a cast of characters. It's got a plot. It's got a message. You know, rhyming and cadence aren't the important thing. The important thing is Pete wanted to tell a story, and he wrapped a melody around it and made all of it fit in with the chords that happened. It's a very long song, and it's got a whole bunch of sections. And
1: You know what's interesting about that is, like, musically if you didn't tell me that was Genesis and you just played it for me, I'd go, that's a Peter Gabriel solo song.
2: You know, I was thinking the same thing when you played it is that could easily be a Peter Gabriel solo song. They don't really like this particular song. I think it's a
0: great song. Now, one of the, uh, I mentioned in the intro, you know, the four minute wonderful guitar solo that, uh, Steve Hackett does, uh, in Firth of fifth. Yeah. I want to play a little bit of that because it really is one of the first times he just like really stretches out. And, You know, backstory on that is he didn't write really the melody of the guitar solo. This is another example of, you know, Tony being Tony. He he wrote the arrangement of the guitar solo, but still having said that, fucking Steve Hackett delivers. It's amazing. I wore that album out. The
2: solo piano part in Fourth of Fifth is just amazing to me. Yeah, the beginning part. That's, that's one of my favorite tracks that Tony Banks does.
0: Yeah, and this is the guitar part, and uh, it's, it's, it's a great, great song. I've seen them do it live many times. We've seen Steve Hackett do it live. Yep. Battle of Epping Forest, which we listened to previously, uh, I don't know that it's had much of a shelf life, but Earth of Fifth just continues to be just a wonderful song. Yeah, it does, definitely. So, you know, after this, you know, Peter Gabriel is getting antsy. The band is nonstop, him and Tony, you know, going back and forth. There is always a lot of tension in the band, apparently, even though they were best of friends. And Peter Gabriel, super, super creative guy, you know, he's got on his mind, he wants to do one thing. And this is when Lamb Lies Down on Broadway came out you know, that period of time is Mm well-documented and, you know, he's got like one foot in the band and one foot out of the band. He's like looking at doing, you know, movie soundtracks and solo projects and things like this. And Lamb Lies Down, they've got this commitment for a tour, but he's about ready to leave the band and and ultimately does. One of the uh, things that happens as a result of that, we know that Phil becomes the singer and, you know, trick of the Tail and wind and weathering comes out. And that's, uh, like I mentioned in the intro, that's the, and then there were four time for the band now is where I think the Steve Hackett story gets interesting because, you know, now there's just four guys and he's trying to get more of his material into the albums and not always successful. One of the songs that he got into wind and Wuthering, that I think is just a beautiful, beautiful song. When I listen to it, it's like, Oh yeah, this should be a song that, um, peter gabriel should sing because it just has that genesis feel Uh, and it's called blood on the rooftops and it starts out with
2: dark and gray an english film the wednesday play
3: we always watch the queen on christmas day won't you stay
0: Isn't that gorgeous? Yep, definitely. Yeah. Love that song. So I think it was around that time when, you know, Steve got a couple of songs on the album. Uh, He got that, he got Entangled, which was on Trick of the Tail. It was kind of at that time where he was like, is this really worth the hassle? You know, there's so many other people I want to play with. He had already recorded his first album. Why stick around with the band in a band and from the outside sounds like it could have been a pretty toxic environment. He's a great songwriter in his own right. When he puts an album together and tours, um, he just surrounds himself with the best of the best. He got a couple of songs on trick of the tail and wind and weather. And he's like, yeah, I think I'm out of here. And he did leave the band. And I think he wanted to just get to the point where he felt like he was an equal as far as songwriting capabilities, he did get kudos from the band on Blood on the Rooftops. And apparently that was like a first. And that's where he kind of hit the road.
2: In the Steve Hackett interviews, he really felt like one of his biggest influences on leaving was his solo album. Because he had done the solo album, he'd had a little bit of success with it. It was getting a little airplay, mm-hmm. but he was getting a lot of pressure to do another solo album. He said it was kind of like a rock and hard place. Do I keep staying here and fighting to get my music played in the band or do i go solo and just rise and fall on my own and he said it was a pretty easy decision
0: well i mean his first album it's a great album it is a great album yeah it got really good reviews that's voyage of the acolyte voyage of the acolyte yeah and when you listen to steve hackett talk about the early albums versus you listen to the rest of tony and mike and phil to some extent the three of them are hypercritical and, you know, there weren't really tight songs, like I say. Steve Hackett loves them, has nothing bad to say about them. And at one point, he's like, you know what? I'm in the best band in the world right now. And still playing them. And uh, yeah, and he still plays the music and he obviously loves it. He was one of us. Yeah. He was definitely one of us. So, one of the interesting things about Genesis that always struck me the first time I saw them live, I think it was the Trick of the Tail tour. What shocked and surprised me was every song was played note for note. Nobody would take a solo, especially like Steve Hackett. Was like He's a guitar player, and I'm a, you know, a 15-year-old kid. It's like, ah, oh, man, I want to see him wail. I want to see him play something cool. But everything was note for note, even the solo went fourth and fifth. That is very weird. You know, when they talk about their songwriting process, a lot of it is they get together and jam, and they just keep the good bits. So they know how to jam. They know how to solo. They know how to improvise but they just never wanted to do that in person. I wonder if that's part of the whole tight ass boarding school English buttoned up mentality kind of thing. I don't know.
1: I have a different angle on it. I very much consider pop to be a product, right? It's very clearly a product. And if that's where they were driving to, If we're architecting a product, I want that product produced the same way every time. I think if you think about that post-war England, right, it was like all about manufacturing and like that's where heavy metal came from, right? Mm -hmm. It's all about like produce the same thing every time, predictability. And I wonder if there's that kind of sensibility built into that of like, we are producing a product.
0: Maybe. And maybe they just wanted to keep it predictable, you know, not make a mistake, do it perfectly every time.
1: Like
3: pop. Like
0: pop. So that was really the the main journey I wanted to go through is how they went from singer-songwriters, amazing prog guys, back to this little core group of the same three that started out more or less. Peter was replaced by Phil. Writing a whole bunch of pop songs and we'll say the post-Steve Hackett career was certainly aside from much more lucrative and produced more hits, much longer. Their years of classic genesis. It was 1970 to 77. In the space of seven years, they did seven albums, each one better than the last. Peter, as we know, went on to have an amazing career. Steve Hackett, obviously, amazing career. We uh, saw him a couple of years back. We saw him on the boat. Yeah, three times now? Yeah, we've seen him at least twice, maybe three times. You could tell he just loves the music so much, yeah. which is really cool because it feels like he's more like one of us.
2: Than one of them, you know. Even when we saw him play on cruise they just stand and play. It isn't like there's a lot of flashy showmanship. He gets the guys to back him up that that can pull the music off.
0: Yeah, but he he definitely does solo though. He does solo. Yeah, they do a version of Supper's Ready, and at the end, he basically does a f- like a four or five minute guitar solo, just wails and wails, and the other musicians leave the stage, and it's just him. The spotlight, the drummer, and the keyboard player. He lets it go and then just ends with a very, very, very soft little thing. And there's a. And then he stops and freaking standing ovation. It's just wonderful to see him embrace the music that way and to see the audiences respond. He's just such an unassuming guy, and audience folks love that.
2: So even though it wasn't Prague, they sort of went in three different directions. Mm hmm. It's Mike, Phil, and Tony going off kind of in their fever dream. Doing the pop star thing. And then Peter gets to go off and do his solo thing, which, like Tony says, you know, the auteur, the vision. Yeah. And then there's Steve taking the old prog stuff, and he's taking it on the road and still playing, and his solo stuff has a lot of resemblance
0: to that. Yeah. The thing that I wonder is, when Peter left, I was trying to get a feeling from the rest of the band. If that made them happy or sad, I know that they wondered what they were going to do. But as far as just the actual dynamic of a key band member leaving, were they sad about that or was it really like, oh, thank God.
1: Or was it the third option, which was like the British post-war stiff upper lip kind of thing of like, well, he's gone. We got to figure out how to make this work now.
0: Carry on, lads. Yeah. And you know, you're probably right. Yeah. Did you get a direction out of it when you read the interviews? Not really. No. No. Tony's kind of hard to read, to be honest, very, uh, matter of fact, here's what's going on, even though he, he could be talking about, you know, writing one of the best songs ever written. Oh yeah. Well, we decided to have this bit and that bit. And then I decided to add some drums and, you know, not a lot of emotion in what he's talking about. Now that's very English. Yeah. I think it's just probably pretty English. You know, one of the interesting things about Peter Gabriel, Steve left the band, and he's obviously doing prog stuff. He surrounds himself with prog musicians. His songs are very proggy, and he's proud of it. Mm -hmm. Is Peter Gabriel prog? And I'm going to go first, and I'm going to say yes. And I know we've talked about it in the past and had had the discussion, and and you're wrong, and I'm right. I think he is prog, but the reality is, I think he's prog because I know his history, and what he's done and is capable of. I totally look at him through prog colored glasses.
1: I've actually come around to your view. When I was first exposed to Peter Gabriel, it was in the mid 90s. It was when Secret World Live came out, and I was just blown away by that movie and seeing this really over the top stage performance. And I was immediately a Peter Gabriel fan. Mm-hmm. And I didn't care if it was pop or whatever else it was classified was I was just a fan of his. And instantly went and got all of his solo stuff. And at some point, and I don't know when this was, I learned that he was previously in Genesis. And I actually, at the time, didn't even know the word prog. That wasn't part of my journey yet. And I didn't care. I like this Peter Gabriel stuff and whatever it is, it is. And I like it. But I never really went and explored Genesis because... The Genesis my dad listened to was awful, and I wanted to have nothing to do with that. It was actually thanks to...
0: Wait, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. Back the truck up, Tony. Your dad listened to Genesis? Oh,
1: yeah, but it was like, we can't dance and shit like that. In too deep, all that. Yeah, and I was like, I have no desire to be anywhere near any of that. (laughs) And then it's actually thanks to you guys that pushed me in the direction to go really legitimately explore... Classic era Genesis. And now I'm a huge fan of classic era Genesis. So maybe it's through that lens, Craig, that now I see Peter Gabriel as part of that continuum. And I also agree with you because when we were texting the other day about this and I was asking, like, what do you think the progiest thing Peter Gabriel is? I texted some things and then I second guessed myself and I came up with other ideas. And I actually identify even his solo work. There's so much of it that I can identify as prog now. Not all of it. Definitely not all of it. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's like Prague light or intro to Prague. And maybe that's a way to bring people into the fold of Peter Gabriel is intro to Prague.
3: Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, I think I do consider Peter Gabriel's work across the board Prague. I also do think that the Venn diagram overlaps heavily with art rock as it pertains to what Lee was mentioning. And I've mentioned before, Peter being an auteur.
2: Yeah. You guys got me convinced on the art rock category. Mm -hmm. And so I think art rock is another extension of Prague. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I think Peter Gabriel is Prague in the art rock sense. Yeah, fair. That seems fair.
0: Anyway, this was our exploration of hopefully some more interesting aspects of classic Genesis of the seventies, you know, seven years, seven albums, guys from the ages of 20 to 27 during that period of time, just, really outdoing themselves and helping define a genre, literally. And and again, a little shout out to Steve Hackett, who endured some rough times to help create that genre. And we spent some time at least near him on the cruise. And I always heard good stories about when he would run into people. The, he was just like the nicest guy in the world. So what I'd like to end with is a little clip from the end of supper is ready where he just gets a standing ovation because it's just him playing for four minutes. That's all I have.
1: Cool. Thanks very much, Craig guys. This, this was fun. You know, I knew you liked Genesis a whole lot and I love seeing your fandom come out in that way. Uh, I it just, it's really, really cool. And you have a unique perspective that I really appreciate.
0: Yeah. I, I, like I said, I really appreciate you guys uh, indulging me. And I definitely feel like the, uh, uh, the old, the old guy who, you know, can't get out of the seventies, but you know, Uh, Neither can Steve Hackett, so uh, I'm in good company.
2: It was nice to hear the breakdown of the core years, but also kind of what they were all focused on and where they were headed. That's something I'd never known
3: before.
1: And I've, I've really appreciated for me as the new guy to Prague in general and coming from Prague Metal, why do I care about that period in time and what carries forward to now?
3: Yeah, yeah, appreciate it.
1: So as we normally do at this time in the show, we're going to do some recommendations for things that we think people, I'll start with you, Craig, what kind of recommendations do you have for people to listen
3: to?
0: In doing the Genesis episode, you know, this is kind of a prog, not prog thing. If you haven't ever listened to Supertramp, they were called prog, but I'm not sure they were prog, but some of their earlier albums, pre-Breakfast in America, Crime of the Century, even in the Quietest Moments, which was recorded in Colorado, actually. Those two albums are, are really brilliant. Very non-traditional song structures, a lot of great piano, a lot of great sax, a lot of just great songwriting. And then they kind of went commercial. But Anyway, yeah, early uh, Super Tramp. Definitely check them out.
1: All right. What you got, Lee? A
0: little bit of a different recommendation from me. Check your
2: local streaming services and find the new Zappa documentary coming out from Alex Winter on November 27th. It's supposed to be a little bit different than anything else that's been done about Zappa so far. And I know I am totally looking forward to it. Was Alex Bill or Ted? Alex was Bill Bill from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure.
1: And so this is the movie that's actually just called Zappa? It's
2: just called Zappa,
3: yep. Awesome.
1: The recommendation I have is going to stem from my fandom of Peter Gabriel and my stance of him as an auteur. In the millennium, going from 99 into 2000, he was commissioned and he worked with something in London called the Millennium Dome Show. It was this big multimedia Cirque du Soleil kind of thing. And he wrote the score for it. And it's an album called Ovo. It's an amazing piece of art. And if you can get your hands on it, usually in a secondhand shop these days. But take in that album as a piece of musical content with vocals and the lyrics and the art in the liner notes. It is a whole package. And if you can ever get a copy of the DVD... That's an even better experience, but I think that what that really drives home is Peter's vision as an artist for these whole things.
2: Cool. I have heard of that, but I actually don't know anything about it.
1: All right. So as we exit, guys, don't forget, you can find us on Twitter at UP3Show, or you can contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. If you're an indie band or just a fan of the show and you want to send us some recommendations for things or you'd like to get your music out here on the show, just feel free to contact us in any of those ways. If you want to show some non-financial support, it's easy. You can subscribe at podbean at up3show.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcast. And also, please take a moment to write a review. This will help make sure that the show pops up whenever people search for prog-related content. As a last note and a little bit of housekeeping for everyone, uh, we've been doing the show for a little while now, and currently we are subscribed to Podbean on the free profile, which is an easy way for us to get started and get our content out to you guys. But we are reaching a limit in the Podbean platform where we need to start paying them to give us more bandwidth per month because you guys are just knocking it out of the part. So what we have done is we've set up a coffee page at ko-fi.com/up3show. You can go over there and throw a few nickels our way, and that'll help us pay for this additional tier that helps keep the show going on Podbean. If we don't manage to be able to pay for their 9.99 a month service, then that limits our bandwidth and we actually have to start removing older episodes to put up the new episodes. So, nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. So subscribe.
2: Yeah. Money. Money money. money, money <laughs> boom, 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 boom,
1: boom. Thanks guys. We'll see you next month. Bye. Bye. Hey folks, Tony here. If you made it this far, congratulations. You're getting every ounce you can out of this podcast episode. As a reminder, we're a podcast about commentary and opinion on prog music. We use samples of music to make our point and to teach others. We are in no way claiming the copyright of any music found in our samples and strongly recommend that you support these artists by buying their material or seeing them live. If you're an artist and you'd like for us to change how we've used your content on the show, please contact us directly so that we can work together. Thanks, guys.